Well, it's anyway, the building work I'm finding is very exciting, although at the moment it looks like they're just destroying the place rather than uh, actually doing anything. But do you know what? I've, I find it fascinating that in the sovereignty of God that we are getting this place ready for in, to increase our capacity, and yet around the nation at this moment, we're hearing increased stories of God moving in power and bringing salvation and changing people's lives all up and down the country. And I think it's no coincidence that God is getting this place ready for the growth that he wants to bring amongst us. And I just felt stirred in my spirit as I was praying about this morning and uh, preparing for this morning. To, I felt God would want to encourage you again to let down your nets. You know that image of the disciples. You may have been fishing all night and caught nothing, but let down your nets again. Go to that friend again and speak to them about Jesus. Go to that person that you've invited before on Alpha and invite them on Alpha again. Go to that friend that's let you down and, uh, and extend the hand of friendship again. And let's see what God wants to do. Because God is on the move and he wants to save people. Amen? Amen. So this is our penultimate talk on Revelation Reveals We Are Conquerors in Christ series. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. I've certainly enjoyed studying Revelation in in more detail and uh, bringing you this series. If you think, God, actually, some of the last few talks you, you've done have been uh, a bit, a bit, a bit deep. Well, t- this morning will still be one of those as well. I'm afraid, but I hope you appreciate that. Actually, the last, including this talk, the last four talks I've done have been on four passages that would be probably some of the most difficult passages in the Bible to to preach from and to and to teach from. You have the uh, the two witnesses. Then you have the woman, the dragon, and the beast. Last time you had Armageddon, and now this time you've got the millennium as well. So well done for surviving them, is what I'm saying. And uh, you're, nearly, you're nearly there. But there's some great stuff and some great truths in there that we can draw out and apply to ourselves. I don't have a book uh, with me this morning from William Barclay. I thought I had a copy in the office, but I, I, I don't. But that would be the book I'd recommend to you this morning, William Barclay's uh, Revela- uh, Revelation of St. John. It's a fantastic book. William Barclay is somebody whose understanding of the culture of the time and the mindset of the people of the time is, is, is quite exceptional. And so he's well worth the read. He's always worth reading alongside somebody else because at points he can be a little bit liberal. Uh, but he doesn't try and hide that. He just, he just is. But apart from that, he is absolutely fantastic in understanding what it meant for the people at that time. The three things I want to bring to you this morning, three areas I want to look at, is the thousand-year conundrum, the death of death, and the final dwelling place of God is what, where we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that thanks to Jesus' death on the cross, we as believers can know for certain that we will be victorious over Satan and even death itself, as the Holy Spirit will sustain us through this life and lead us into the very presence of God himself. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to invite Andy up to read Revelation chapter uh, 20 to us. If you can read the whole chapter, uh, uh, Andy, that would be, uh, be great. We'll do it in one, one go. Should be on. Oh, it's about to be on. Are we there? There we go. Revelation 20, the thousand years. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is a second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you, Andy. That's great. So, guys, we're going to spend eternity with each other. So what's a thousand years between friends? Remember that as I, as I go through this. This passage, as I say, is quite a controversial one, particularly over this thousand-year period. And there's lots of people hold many uh, strong views on it. Uh, as we look at it, I will outline a couple of the, uh, those views to you. But as we look at it, uh, can I uh, encourage you to remember the fact that we interpret what is unclear in Scripture by what is clear in Scripture. And as this is the only passage uh, in Scripture that talks about this thousand-year period, this would come under that category of unclear. Therefore, uh, please don't be too dogmatic on any particular view, actually. You need to uh, be uh, humble and uh, gracious to those people that may hold a different view towards you on this. Basically, this view of this thousand-year period, there's three main views that sum up this thousand-year period. And I'm going to need, I'm going to outline two of them to you, and then I'll mention briefly another one. But I'm going to need seven volunteers just to hold some paper and Smithy as well. So, uh, so let's get some uh, volunteers. I'll pick on people otherwise. Come on, Max. Come on, Sam. Up you come. So basically, the first one, if you can hold that, Sam, it starts with the life, 
death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This is a timeline I'm drawing out for you here. It starts uh, with him. You then get the the time of the church and the gospel going out. And towards uh, later in time, you get a great tribulation that occurs where there's lots of of, uh, trouble and the Antichrist is there and he persecutes the church. Steve, if you can come here. Uh, Towards the end of that time, some people say before, you then get the return of Christ who comes and usually people put him here ruling from uh, uh, Jerusalem. Then there is, can I have another volunteer? Phil. You're sitting on the front row, you're going, to get, you're going to get picked on. Where there is a literal thousand year period where Satan is bound. Smithy, this is you, your, your turn, your moment of fame, Smithy. So it, they, where an angel comes down, and Smithy represents the devil here as a Moreland student amongst us. Yeah, and uh, and uh, he gets bound for a thousand years, no longer able to deceive the nations if this angel can tie up this piece of rope here. Anyway, it's not going very well, is it? But uh, yeah, there we go, that'll do. That'll do. He's, he, he's bound for a thousand years. Towards the end of that period, though, he gets free, and he deceives the nations, and uh, he brings about a final battle. No, no, you need to be free, because I need you for the next example as well. Paul. No, 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 he's got the sign for you being bound. Uh, there's, a final, there's a final battle, and then Paul, can I have you out here, please? Oh, yeah, sorry, it's done in, witness, in front of witnesses as well, don't worry. There's a, the final judgment where the dead are judged, and then, Dave, can you? There is the eternal state. Now, this, if you look at the timeline, this is what one particular major view of the, this period of time is. This is known. Oh, can you hold them up higher, guys, so people can see at the back? Uh, this is known as pre-millennial, because Christ returns prior to this thousand-year period. Some people, there's another view called post-millennial. Don't need to remember all these names, where Christ returns after the thousand-year period, but this is one of the, the major views that uh, that people <laughs> oh, look at there you go yeah, yeah, that, that, that that people hold. Now, there's another uh, major view, and that's called a millennial. And let, let, me, uh, let me get another six volunteers up here, please. And so uh, we can start here. Amanda, you can, as you're at the front row there, you can come. So this this view, you start with the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, Andy, uh, through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, he binds the devil, and the thousand-year period, can you hold it up, please, is symbolic of the period between Christ's first coming and second coming, that the devil can't stop the advance of the gospel. Then, during this period as well, Pauline, can I, uh, can I pick on you? <laughs> To hold this one up. During this period as well, you get tribulations going throughout the period where the devil is allowed for limited times to persecute the church that, uh, that go throughout this time, and it will culminate in a final battle at the end. But it represents a struggle between uh, the, the, the struggle that the church will face whilst it's on this earth, but the, the devil can't be victorious because Christ has done that. You then, uh, Dave, can I pick on you? You then get the return of Christ 
And then Adam, can I pick on you? And, and uh, uh, Philippa as well. You then, after that, you get the judgment where the living and the dead are judged. And then you get the eternal state. Okay, so these are the two main views on the timeline of what the Bible sets out after, uh, for, from Christ's first coming to when he will come again. Either way, whatever view you want to, to take on the Bible, evil is punished and, uh, and the God is victorious and the righteous go to live with him forever and ever. So thank you guys. You can uh, take your seats. You can keep those souvenirs if you want or, or put them uh, on the floor. But hopefully that will give you an idea of the timeline. The different books I've recommended, some of them would be more pre-millennial, some of them would be more a-millennial, seeing that thousand-year period as symbolic. Personally, I would go more with the a-millennial, and as I run through the passage with you now, that's where I would be on this, this perspective. And the reason why for that is I think it's more consistent in applying uh, applying scripture, particularly apocalyptic scripture, which uses images and symbols and numbers, not to actually be those images, but to, to represent a meaning behind it. Whereas sometimes when people take it, um, try to take bits literally, they take a little bit literally and they, and they don't take other bits literally. They choose what they take literally or not. Whereas this one, you, it's more consistent in its approach. A thousand years, as we've looked at through the, the book, it symbolizes many or a multitude of people. Even elsewhere in scripture, uh, it uses this uh, imagery as well, where it says, you know, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So I would see it's supposed to be taken symbolically. When it talks about the binding of Satan and the throwing him into the, the abyss so that he can't deceive the nations, what does that mean? Well, Jesus, when he was on earth, made it clear that he had come to bind the strong man and to raid his house. That's what the words that, that he used. So he had come to bind Satan so that he could raid his, his house. When it talks about being put into the abyss... Biblically speaking, the abyss was a place of judgment where people went to await judgment. So the, the demons of the Gerasians, if you remember that story, when they came up to, to Jesus in that man, and they, they pleaded with him, don't throw me into the abyss before the appointed time, because they didn't want to go and face judgment. But Jesus could say, at the, just before he went to the cross, he could say this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Notice Jesus links his death on the cross with the judgment of Satan and the drawing of all people to himself. In Acts chapter 14 and in Acts chapter 17, uh, 17 even, sorry. Uh, when, uh, when Paul is um, speaking to the men at, at Lystra and the men at Athens, he links the, uh, the, um, the time of ignorance and being under false gods and the devil is over. It's now time to repent and to turn to, to Jesus. So I would say it's best to interpret these verses as 
that the devil is no longer, is restricted, I mean, in his ability to stop the work of God's salvation going out throughout the ends of the earth. And his final judgment has been sealed and, 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 uh, and settled on the cross of Christ Jesus. For Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against them. Yes, he'll be allowed for a short period of time to uh, persecute the church. and It may seem that he even prevails at times, but ultimately he will not. Nowhere, notice as well in this passage, does it actually refer to the return of Christ as it's talking about the thousand years. Also, when you look at the thrones that are in this passage, now this word thrones occurs 47 times in the book of Revelation. Two of them refer to the devil and the beast, but the other 44 times these thrones are clearly in heaven. Therefore, it's more in keeping with the rest of the book of Revelation to see these thrones in this passage to be represented in heaven, not on earth. Sorry, I know this is a bit technical, but um, there's two more technical bits, and then, and then we're done, and it's more sort of an application and, and that sort of thing. There is, in this passage, you also see the term first resurrection mentioned. That is only mentioned two times in the Bible, and that's in this passage. You also get the, the word second death mentioned four times in the Bible, all in the book of Revelation. Now, this passage makes clear what the second death is. The second death is talking about hell. It's talking about when death is no more a reality on this side because immortality reigns and the people and the devils and the demons that, are, that have rebelled against Christ will be put out of his presence forever. That's the second death. Well, what does the first resurrection mean? Well, what does the passage teach us? Firstly, the passage teaches us that those who have the first resurrection, the second death, has no power over them. Well, the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that the moment somebody believes they're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the second death has no power over them because heaven is their destiny. Secondly, it calls them priests of God most high. Well, we know because the rest of the New Testament teaches us that all believers are priests. It's the priesthood of all believers. So that happens to somebody the moment they believe. Next, it says they will reign with him. Again, the New Testament is clear in teaching that all believers reign with Christ in the heavenly places. Finally, it talks about them judging. And again, The rest of the New Testament makes it clear that all believers will be involved in the judgment of the world to some degree or other. Also, the word for resurrection itself doesn't necessarily mean in the Greek bodily resurrection. It means raising up or rising. Thus, it's not specific to bodily resurrection. So I would say it's best to interpret this with the rest of the New Testament and see it as the saints reigning with the Lord, particularly those that have gone to be with him in glory at the moment. You see, the point of the passage and the point that we can take from it is, it's, must remember, it's written to the persecuted church and it's encouraging them that whether they live or whether they die, whether God uses them to see 
great works done or whether that he allows a devil to have the upper hand on them in, the, in their life for a season to test them, that they and you and I are more than conquerors in Christ and, that he, and death itself has no hold over you or over me because our resurrected king has rendered it defeated. Hallelujah. It's to encourage the church that actually no matter what happens, God is sovereign and his plan will work out throughout this age and into the eternal age. The passage then moves on to talk about the death of death. It talks about the judgment of God and all mankind is judged before God. Death and the place of the dead is no longer necessary because immortality reigns. The Bible makes it clear that both heaven and hell are physical, eternal realities that await. One absolutely amazing beyond all imagination. The other more horrifying than we can imagine or want to imagine. It says that all the dead will be raised and judged. Even those lost at sea. The ancient world were worried about those that got lost at sea. Would they, would they uh, be found? But even those lost at sea will be raised and judged. And notice they are judged for their deeds. What we do impacts our judgment most definitely. But notice that what determines our destiny is not our deeds, but it's whether we're written in the book of life or not. That is the key criteria, not our deeds, but whether we're in the book of life. Even as believers, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians, 30, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verses uh, 10 to 15, that we will be judged, yes, in terms of our deeds, but that's to do with our rewards. Our salvation is dependent on Jesus Christ. Jesus could say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And 1 John 5 makes this clear. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. My friends, that is a key question that you need to ask yourself, is what have you done with Jesus? It's not uh, how does my life compare with other people's lives. It's not do my good works outweigh my bad works. It's not, oh, I must try harder you, you're asking the wrong questions with those. You'd be like the school kid, which was very much like me, that is answering all the questions that the teacher is not asking, and therefore you fail in your, in your mark. My friends, the, the, the question that heaven is asking you is, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Did you recognize him? Did you recognize that he lived his life for you, that he died on a cross for you so that if you surrender your life to him that you can get right with God you can receive his forgiveness and his goodness and his love that love that led him to the cross in the first place on on your behalf to pay for all the things that you have done all the things that you have said all the things that you have thought that are offensive to God and my friends if you haven't done that 
here this morning. Be warned. The Bible makes it very clear that there's only one way to get right with God. And that's not, just making funny noises, uh, that's not through your works. That's through receiving Jesus. And the great news about that is no matter how bad you've been, no matter what you've done in the past, through coming to Jesus, you can receive his forgiveness and get right with him. There's no minimum standard. There's no, uh, there's no sort of bar that you have to, to, to cross. It's just you have to humbly come to him and receive his forgiveness and know that his Holy Spirit is there to help you, to sort you out and to bring you through this life into life eternal My friends, it's through giving your life to Jesus that you get your name put in the book of life. And for those of you, which is the majority of us here, that know Jesus already, let's remember this. That whilst good works are important, we are not saved by those good works. Whilst we're called to be holy because God himself is holy, it's not us who makes us even the slightest bit holy. It's all from Jesus. It's all for Jesus. It's all to Jesus. The problem is sometimes we as Christians, we can sound a little bit like a self-help group or just a group of very moral people. And yes, we're called to be moral, but the answer is always Jesus. How are you doing at lifting up Jesus amongst your friends great that you talk about church great that you don't swear great that you try to live a good life that's fantastic but are you telling people about the one that you're doing that for the one who helps you to do that and the one that forgives you when you fail to do that as well let's make sure that we lift up the name of Jesus amongst our friends and we lift him up because he is the solution to their deepest needs, not trying to, not some sort of self-help therapy or something like that. You see, someone who's in their bedroom while the house is on fire doesn't need to sort out their bedroom first or sort out the cupboard and make it look nice. They need to know the one who's going to rescue them out of that fire, and he will sort out the rest. My friends, let's make sure that we're talking to our friends about Jesus and pointing them to him because he is the solution to all of their questions. Finally, I'm going to invite Carol up here to read Revelation 21 to us as we look at the amazing final dwelling place that awaits the the believers. Hello. (laughs) Sorry. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you, Carol. That's great. The city is to be taken symbolically as well, because the angel says, 
I'm going to show you the wife, the bride of Christ. And then he sees a, he sees a city. So don't get too distracted by this city, which is 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia, which is over 1,300 miles wide, high and, uh, and long uh, as well, with a wall of 144 cubits, you know, 70 meters roughly uh, high uh, around it. Remember from earlier chapters where it talks that the, the number 12,000 being symbolic, and you had 12 tribes of 12,000 equaling 144,000. It's John's way of saying that the city limits are perfectly demarcated and the city is perfectly protected as well. No evil will ever come in there. And the city itself is large enough for all the elect, all God's saints to to dwell in. It's cubed because the Holy of Holies in the temple was perfectly cubed as well. So it represents God himself being in and throughout that whole city. Saints from both the Old Testament and those under the New Covenant are included in the city, as you can see with the 12 tribes names on the gates and the 12 foundations being the names of the apostle as well. And evil cannot be there, nor darkness, because God himself dwells in it. God is its light and he lights, lights up the place. So that's the city. It's going to be a beautiful city with all these uh, um, you know, gold and that sort of thing, just representing the glory and the beauty of the age to come that God is going to bring about. But the key verses from those chapter that I want us to focus on is just verses 3 and 4 where it says behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you know, the Bible starts with God creating a perfect world and making man to live in this perfect world, man having access to God and everything was well, but because of man's sin, because of man's rebellion, he brought destruction into the world, destruction on himself, destruction on others, and destruction on God's good creation. He, he, uh, he uh, broke off that access that we had to God. No longer do we automatically know God or have access to God. But now, in this passage, we see the great reversal take place, where God restores all things, where God makes everything perfect again, where evil is banished outside of God's good creation and where God's people can be there. And once again, they can have access to him, full access to God forever and ever. And see that beautiful phrase as well that goes on to say, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My friends, do you know grief? Do you know sadness in this life? Have you known the cruelty of others towards you? Have you had to go through difficult and frustrating times? God is not unconcerned for your life. God is not distant. No, in fact, the Bible tells us he's a very present help in the time of trouble. He is a wonderful counsellor in this life. But also in the age to come, he himself will take time to wipe away every tear 
from your eye because he cares for you. He will heal your hurts because he loves you. And my friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you want to go to this place. This is a place that you want to be in the renewed and the perfected earth where God's dwelling place will be with us, where there'll be no more suffering, where there'll be no more sin, where there'll be no more wickedness, and there'll be no pain. We'll have perfect union with God. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, just pray this prayer along with me. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads, in fact, and just close your eyes. If you're here and you, you don't know Jesus and you want to get your life sorted with him, you want to receive his forgiveness and go to have this place as your eternal dwelling place, then pray this prayer in your heart along with me. And then at the end of it, I'll just ask you to raise your hand so I can uh, see if you prayed it with me. But just pray this uh, along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved me enough to send your son to die on a cross for me. Please forgive me for all that I have done, said, and thought that offends you. Please help me to live the rest of my life for you. Please put your Holy Spirit inside of me and and change me from the inside out. Because I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon from Christ Church Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.christchurchhailsham.org.